right, friends. Greg Kokel here. Welcome to our program. It's called Stand to Reason, and I am your host. And uh, we're going to do something a little different uh, for this hour. Uh, I am actually in Wisconsin as you listen to this because I'm I'm taking <laughs> yet another writer's retreat in the Northwoods, not with the rest of my family. Although my my daughter did ask my my 14 year old asked if she could come with me. Oh, this is unheard of that she went. Now I'm going to be up here for the first couple of weeks of August. And I'll be doing one show live from the Northwoods, but this one I'm just packing in in advance to run uh, so that the first day I get there, I don't have to do a show and all the things that go along with that so I can get rolling on my writing. Uh, and uh, But she said, Dad, can I go with you and be up there? And uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, we're going to – it's just great. It's, I, I won't get to tell you all the reasons why it's especially – Great, but she's never asked for anything like that before. So we're going to. I'm coming from a different location. I'll be, <clears throat> and for you, I will have been in Cincinnati at uh, Frank Turek's CIA and doing some things that weekend, and uh, meeting her in uh, in Minneapolis. She'll be unaccompanied minor until she gets there, and then we'll go out to our place, and she'll come back with me in a couple weeks later. But. Uh, Anyway, so that's where I'm at, and so that's why I'm doing a special broadcast right now, which means I'm not taking calls, sort of. I mean, in a certain sense, I am taking calls, but not the usual method. And we have, uh, and it was it was Derek and Amy, I think, who came up with this idea, um, uh, have instituted a practice that we do not have any fancy name for this, and if anybody can think of a good Clever name, clever, catchy, memorable, but not corny for this thing. Then we'll uh, we'll we'll uh, take your your moniker. He might even give you credit for it, and we'll adopt it for this kind of thing. Basically, the idea here is that um, some people can't stay on the line. They like to ask questions, and some of uh, of you do through STRask hashtag STRask, and then you. Uh, write it out and, uh, you know, identify it as such, and then we find it, and Amy finds it, and then we do it on a separate broadcast. But um, this is an opportunity to actually do a recorded call. And if you go to sdr.org and you go to the um, broadcast page, there's an explanation of how you can do a recorded call. You push the button, and then you give your question. And then we save it for special times like these and like today, and I will play your question on the air, and I will respond to it. <clears throat> the liability, of course, for me, and maybe for you, is that we don't have an interactive environment. But it may be the only way you can ask your question in a verbal way because you can't wait on hold uh, at the particular time that we have our live call-in show. So uh, we're just going to call us recorded calls, a very um, plain, ordinary, pedestrian title. We're looking for something a little bit more fun. So if you come up with something, just uh, contact Amy or leave a note on our webpage or something, and we'll think about it. All right. This first call is coming from Sunny 
and it's a question about a Darwinian evolution and the way it's characterized sometimes by Christians. So let's hear what Sonny has to say. Hey, Greg. My name is Sonny. I'm from Hendersonville, North Carolina, if you can't tell by the southern accent. <laughs> but my question is, is I run into a lot of atheists that you try to talk to about evolution and the difference between micro evolution and macro and they act like you're ignorant uh, because they say there's no difference uh, and I try to show them the definitions but they say that that's just something that uh Christians try to come up with to divide it. Could you just give me a little insight of, you know, maybe how to handle that or just some advice on to make sure that I'm not the only one that kind of <laughs> characterizes those two words differently? Mm -hmm. Thanks for all you guys do. All right. Well, that was great. Thank you, Sonny, from North Carolina. You do sound like a Southerner, but it's very sweet to hear that to my ears. And this is a distinction that is often made when um, there is talk about evolution, but it is not a distinction that is made by Christians as if this is some kind of uh, verbal trick that we're using to make Darwinian evolution seem untenable. And it's very easy to solve this problem in a certain sense, or at least to parry that particular challenge. Oh, this is an illegitimate distinction made by Christians. And you could do what I did last night in anticipating this question. I, I know how to respond to the question in general, but I thought the question, what came up into my mind, came to my mind was, wasn't this a distinction that Darwin himself made? Didn't Darwin make this distinction? So what I did is I, I went to Google and I typed in um, microevolution versus macroevolution. That's all I did. And what happened is a whole bunch of sites came up immediately to describe the distinction between these two concepts. And uh, what's curious about the, the characterization is that even those that were not clearly Christian organizations that were making the distinction and then trading on that distinction to uh, express concerns about the legitimacy of Darwinian evolution as an explanation for the diversity of life on planet Earth, there were a whole bunch of other people that weighed in on it that were uh, either just, in a, in a sense, neutral parties uh, that were defining the words, describing the way the words have been used in common parlance, because after all, uh, definitions of words are conventional. It's the, it's the convention of how we, the meanings we ascribe to certain words at different times. And, uh, and it turns out this is standard vocabulary. Not news to me, but I'm just saying from what I found out on, on Google. You can go and Google the language. Uh, indeed, um, one of the entries were at Berkeley EDU. That means 
California University, UC, uh, University of California at Berkeley, characteristically called Cal, referred to as Cal, had their own entry on their own educational website making the distinction. Okay, now there is a concern that is raised. Uh, I, I mean, there's a certain kind of valid point that is made in fussing a little bit about this distinction um, because there seems to be uh, a legitimate complaint that can be raised that erases the meaningfulness of any distinction as it pertains to the legitimacy of Darwinism. I'm going to speak to that in a few moments. But as for the moment, let's just take how the terminology is used. And as I looked at the different definitions from different sources, including Berkeley, um, there was a clear distinction between these two, the, the way these two words are used. And microbes, of course, means small, and macro means large. So the microevolution was referring to smaller changes in the existing gene pool that created variation in the morphology of the critter. So you can have microevolution among dogs. Breeders manipulate existing gene pools in such a way that the the uh, the, the the phenotypes, um, which well, let me back up. The genotype is what genes are what the genes say about certain body uh, forms. And the, like, blue eyes, brown eyes. Okay, you can have a blue eye gene and a brown eye gene. If you have two, each of, one of each, guess what's going to win? It's a, the brown eye is going to win because it's, it's, a, it's the more aggressive one, so to say, so to speak. The dominant one. And so you can have a phenotype with blue eyes, but have brown eyes because you've got a brown type gene on your gene, in your gene pool. Okay, and that can be manipulated. If you get the right number, right combination, people with blue and brown, pretty soon you're going to get a blue-eyed kid. And that blue-eyed kid is blue-eyed only because he got a brown eye, a blue eye from mom and blue eye from dad. Okay, so now he's got two blue eyes, and that's why he manifests blue eyes in the phenotype. The genotype is two blues, so nice. But if you take two blues and you put together with two blues, you're going to get blues because that's all that's left. So there is a way to manipulate the existing gene pool in such a way as to as to get uh, significant variations in an individual kind. Now that is called microevolution. All these changes with the existing gene pool, okay? But that isn't going to produce a different kind of critter. You have to change the existing information in order to get novel features that starts moving away from one kind into another kind. And when it moves far enough away, you don't have just micro changes within the gene pool. You have macro changes in the body types themselves. All right. So uh, maybe you have intra species 
and those are the micro changes. And then you have changes that transcends the species, um, or or maybe and maybe on a phylum level, or a, a class level, or a genus level. These are all different categorizations of 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 living things, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus. Species is at the bottom, but you have genus, you have class, like you have reptiles, you have birds, you have amphibians, etc. Um, mammals, okay, these are different classes. So when there are changes on these different class, one class to another, that's a macro change, right? But when, you know, the eye color is changing or the finch beak size is changing or the peppered moth color is changing, this is all micro. So there is a legitimate distinction in the parlance of the field between microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution is adaptation that a creature can have based on the genetic information already resident in the gene pool, the genotype if you're following my details, okay? <clears throat> um, and, and, and when you go to macro, that's where the bigger changes manifest themselves. Okay, now here is where the, 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 kind, the complaint probably is originating among the atheists who are pro-evolution, all right? Um, this lingo or the language is certainly not created by Christians. This is the language of the field. And it's identifying two different magnitudes of change. Um, but, but the process, according to the Darwinian model, is exactly the same in both cases. So there is no biological distinction in the process. There is a distinction of scope and degree. The process is neo-Darwinism. It is genetic mutation and natural selection. So you get a mutation of a gene that manifests a new characteristic in the form of the body of the of the offspring that uh, that that uh, gives it a a reproductive advantage. It's not a survival advantage, strictly speaking. It isn't, it's not, you know, trying to keep the species going. No, it's the selfish gene, as Dawkins would put it, that gets in there, and now its gene is going to reproduce more effectively in the next generation than other genes. And so in the competition, the natural selection, the more preferential gene is going to survive and be reproduced in subsequent generations, okay? And it's these subsequent generations, according to this view, that eventually add up to big, giant changes. So on Darwin's view, there were no saltations, there were no big jumps from one to another. It was all small changes, according to Darwin. Now, that notion is 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 under review from Darwinists, and so you've got classical Darwinists, and then you have people like Stephen Jay Gould who are punctuated equilibrium Darwinists. That means like long periods of stasis, no change, then bang, a big jump in evolution. 
uh, just went really fast, fast in evolutionary terms. And the reason why those people advocate that kind of evolution is because that's what appears to be the case in the fossil record. Long periods of stasis, and then all of a sudden something new shows up, completely new and completely different, a macro change. But according to the notion, generally speaking, you've got these little bit of genetic changes that then move the physical changes forward. The micro, uh, the aggregation of micro changes results in a macro change. So this is part of the complaint of the atheist. You Christians, the way we use the information, they're going to say, you Christians are fine with microevolution, but you're not fine with macroevolution. But the biological process is the same in both cases, it's just that macro is looking at the big picture over long periods of time and the large changes that aggregate as a result of all these little micro changes. And micro is just looking at a shorter period of time in a smaller gene pool, the existing gene pool, not looking so much at at the uh, the mutations, this, the existing gene pool, and seeing variation you can get in the existing gene pool. And by the way, that was the the Finch's Beaks. Uh, Darwin's famous finches from the Galapagos Islands, and this was also what we see in the famous peppered moth, Bistion betularis, um, uh, in the Industrial Revolution in England. So these are classic examples of evolution that are really examples of microevolution, meant to demonstrate that microevolution happens. Okay, this is not controversial with most educated and thoughtful Christians. Microevolution, because it's small, and it can happen fairly quickly in small steps, can be observed. The question is whether Mike, these small steps, the way these small steps happen, can account for the, long, the apparent prodigious change long-term across species, across uh, orders or classes or, or whatever? That's the real question. Are these small changes capable of adding up to the big changes, or are there limits? So if I were talking to an atheist who raised this challenge the way that Sonny characterized it, I would say, well, this distinction is not made by Christians. This is this is the language of the field, for one, because they were te- they were speaking of two different aspects. But I understand on your view, on the Darwinian view, we are not talking about a different biological process. We are talking about the same biological process over a very long period of time that creates a huge change. Ultimately, that's the claim. So it's like saying, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like I, I uh, I'm trying to think of an apt uh, illustration, but um, can I walk around the world? I mean, issues of oceans aside, um, yeah, one step at a time. Just take a step, then another step. Then another step, 
rest for a while, have dinner, take another step. And eventually you're going to walk around the world. And that's because, in a sense, there is really no natural limitation to you taking a bunch of small steps to add up to a big difference. Follow that? However, (laughs) the question is whether that kind of metaphor illustration is parallel with Darwinian evolution. So let me offer a different example. And let's just say you're a really good runner, and you can run a five-minute mile. Now, that's pretty fast. There was a time when that seemed like it was an impossible feat, and then Andy Bannister, I think his name was, was Andy Bannister? He broke the five-minute mile, and then it turns out right after that, everybody, a lot of other people did as well. I don't even know what the world record is now, but it's not unusual for people to break that five-minute mile. But here's the question. Okay, so that is physically possible. We saw it happen. People do it even today. But since somebody can break the five-minute mile, does that mean that those same people can run 10 miles in 50 minutes, five zero minutes? All that is is 10 times five. Can they keep doing that without slowing down? Well, the answer is no. You can't maintain that pace because there are physical limitations. You can't just look at what's possible to be done in five minutes and then just simply extrapolate out into the future and say, well, then this is this this other thing, this larger thing, could be accomplished by the aggregations of these smaller things. No, because there may be physical limits, and this is precisely what we find with Darwinian evolution, that there are physical limits. When, they, when these changes bump up against, we're just going to call it the kind and not the species, because even the notion of a species is, is somewhat arbitrary. Um, it is a. It, it's just. It's a place where we draw a circle around. So I'm not going to call it a species. I'm just going to call it a kind. That's the biblical language. But you can call it whatever you want. Frankly, all I'm suggesting is there does seem to be a limit of change. You get to a certain point and you can't go further. And what ends up happening when there's genetic mutations that provide new information into the gene pool? They do not help the critter to reproduce more effectively, they hurt the critter. Now, you can talk, you can tell all kinds of stories about how, in principle, genetic change can create bodily forms that will make um, certain individuals survive better, therefore get their genes into the next generation more effectively. Richard Dawkins does this all the time, how flight developed. You can tell those stories. There's a pejorative term applied to that, not just by non-Darwinists, but by other Darwinists who uh, are aware that some of these guys seem like they're making it up, and it that is making up the scenarios without good evidence for it. These are called just-so stories. Uh, just-so stories, uh, that's the title of Kipling's um, Stories for Children, right? Okay, well, these aren't just just-so stories. Uh, they say these are accurate characterizations of what took place. Well, you're going to have to do more than look at small changes and then automatically extrapolate into the future 
and say it there is no limitation because when we look at the smaller arena biologically we realize there are all kinds of limitations now i'm not going to go into detail what those limitations amount to but this is why the distinction between macro between microevolution and macroevolution is made by critics of the Darwinian project because we can observe the micro. We can observe that. Not controversial. But what we also observe are limits to the, the microevolution adaptation. And once you hit the limit, you can't go further. The going further into the next thing, the criticism is, is largely in the imagination of the scientist who, who conclude the legitimacy of the Darwinian model based on microevolution and then presume its unlimited capability to produce the vast variety of living creatures in the world, all the different levels, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. That's a lot of variation, all right? And so the question is, can it? And you look at the mechanism, you look at the fossil record, you look at a whole bunch of things, and there are serious problems. So on the one hand, I would say to the atheists, we didn't make this stuff up. This is the way you guys talk about things. Even Berkeley EDU has the distinction. But there is a presumption that's made, and there is a point, and the point is that the biological process that is part of the micro that produces the macro is the same. Got it. The question is whether the biological process we see on a micro level is capable of moving ahead, largely unrestricted and unlimited to do the incredible things or to build the incredible diversity that we see of the biological realm. And uh, in my view, there is no good reason to think that. No good reason. There is a reason. And the reason is if you want to seize on and commit yourself to a materialistic process that will explain it, then this is the this is the going favorite, and there aren't any others. And if you don't have this, then what you've got left is some t- version of intelligent design, and that is odious to a lot of people, so they're just not going there, all right? So I think though there is a measure of legitimacy to the complaint or the concern of the atheist as to the process itself, the point still stands. Can our micro changes unlimited um, such that you add enough of them up and you're going to get this massive diversity? Biologically speaking, chemically speaking, no, they're not unlimited. And this has, I think, become very obvious to a lot of people, which is why they're uh, looking around for alternative explanations. So there you go, Sonny. I thank you for your call, and I hope that's helpful. I realize I went a lot longer than I thought I would, so we need a break. So let's go to break, and uh, I'll have more questions when I return on Stand to Reason. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. 
Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And red pen logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. All right, friends. Back with you here at Sandra Reason, doing our recorded calls this show. Again, looking for <clears throat> a more clever uh, moniker for that process or this uh, plan here. But um, I'm looking at some of these here. There's so many interesting ones. I want to figure out the best way to use my time. <clears throat> well, here's one that's a follow-up from a question that a caller asked um, uh, a couple of maybe a week or so ago, and maybe this was somebody who did a recorded call, right? Okay, so pardon me, I answered the question, and the question originally was, "This is Tom." Oh, we, we, we're going to do it, right? Let's just run, Tom. Tom, the one about it. yeah. Let's go ahead and do that. Sorry, I was going to read it. Hello, Greg. Uh, thanks for addressing that question I had about celebrating the uh, Roe v. Wade decision. I wanted to let you know what the pastor had said or how he responded to me when I asked him about it. He said, hey, Tom, good to hear from you. Yes, this is a great and very complex topic to discuss. I'm pro-life. My sister and her husband have adopted two kids, so I love adoption. There are a lot of interesting angles to the issue. For example, does life begin at conception? How do we know the answer to that? If not at conception, when? Another interesting fact I learned a couple of years ago, abortion rates have gone down. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I lost my place here. Um, 
court decision will accelerate uh, that decline or not. It might. I'm def definitely for fewer and fewer abortions. Some argue whether that is best accomplished through laws or through people working and praying to change people's hearts. Anyway, yes, we should talk about it in some way. I just didn't want to feel, feel forced to say something about it right away. Again, there are many little issues to sort through. So now that you know more about the issue, um, I don't know if that helps with um, the way I approached it when I said keeping the peace. Um, I don't know if going to this church, I can have those discussions. I don't think they're going to be very productive hmm. uh, just based on some of the uh, the views that are by oh a chunk of the population at the church. Mm -hmm. Anyway, thank you again for uh, addressing it. Um, I don't know what you think. I'd uh, be curious to see if that helps you at all. Thanks. All right, Tom. Thank you for that that call and that follow-up. There's a lot going on here, and um, I'm actually, I'll just confess, I'm feeling a bit frustrated with the pastor's response. So let me see if I can if I could create a parallel here and try to put those responses uh, in a parallel circumstance, okay? Let's talk about slavery. You know, slavery was abolished using uh, the amendment. Uh, I can't remember exactly which one, but in any event, should we rejoice that slavery was abolished? Oh, who wouldn't say yes? But what if somebody said, well, you know, I don't want to rejoice in public because actually it's it's kind of a complex topic. And we're not really sure if black slaves are alive or not. Now, that would be a ridiculous thing to say, obviously, but uh, you'll see the parallel in a minute. Do you realize if I said what well, was a complex topic and there are a lot of nuances I'm trying to think uh, there are many little issues to sort out. What's going to happen with all those blacks that we release? How will they make a living? What about all those poor farm owners who now are going to be economically distraught because they've lost the labor? Are you getting my point here? It isn't that there aren't other issues to resolve in a certain sense. I'll get to the life issue and when life begins and, you know, are, are black slaves alive or not in a minute. But all of these other kinds of questions are utterly and completely inconsequential to the gravity of the decision itself to abolish slavery. None of these issues should give anybody pause about abolishing slavery. It was such a wicked enterprise. Oh, do we have to figure out now what, how are we going to support, how are these people going to support themselves? How, what's the South going to do in an agrarian economy without slaves? I mean, those have to be answered, but those are utterly inconsequential in compared to the moral gravity of the decision of slavery. So, uh, what's complex about it? Yes, I'm glad that 
Roe v. Wade has been overturned, but it's a complex topic. What's complex about it? Are we killing unborn children? Yes. You're pro-life. You acknowledge that. Where's the complexity? There are a lot of interesting angles. Um, Really? Angles that matter to the broader issue? And who knows when life begins? Please. Is a black slave alive? Uh, Yeah. How do we know? Because it has all the biological functions of a living thing. Is it the unborn alive? Yes. How do we know? All the same reasons. Nobody in the scientific community is the least bit confused about whether the unborn is alive. Now, they can give you all the scientific characteristics. How about this? Is it growing? Yeah, it's alive. End of issue. And abortion rates have gone down. Yes. Good. The court will accelerate the decline. Yes. Good. But should we do it with laws or changed hearts? Really? Please. You know, uh, slavery is an evil institution, but instead of passing laws against slavery, maybe we should just preach the gospel and people's hearts will be changed and they won't have slaves. Maybe that's a better solution. This is laughable. This is laughable. Of course, changed hearts are going to change attitudes towards these things. But people don't get a changed heart all the time. And so they decide to do the bad thing, which is why we have laws, all kinds of laws. We have laws that keep people from choosing to do the evil thing. Because only the threat of violence against them will keep them from doing the evil thing. If they become a Christian, great. But if they don't, we still have to keep them from doing evil things across the board, whether it's theft or murder or all kinds of other cultural violations, social violations, harm to other individuals. We pass laws to change behavior. I, I, oh, it's painful. It's just painful to hear this. So I hope... Um, Tom, this is obvious that none of those responses are helpful. Glad he says, yes, I'm pro-life. It's not a complex topic. There may be interesting angles. They're irrelevant to the moral issue. Um, Many other little issues, again, irrelevant to the issue the weighty moral issue. When does life begin? Read any book on embryology, any biology book. Shall we pass laws or wait for changed hearts? Oh, I think we should pass laws (laughs) to keep people from killing other people if their hearts don't get changed so that they don't. No, duh. So then the question is, the final one, what what does one do in an environment like this where the pastor talks this way? Uh, I don't know what to do. I, I, I mean, I there are probably a lot of pastors that are going to 
have a, a kind of weak response like this is. At least he's pro-life. There's no ambiguity in his mind about whether he's pro-life or not, although one wonders why he raised the question is when does life begin? Because he might be saying, well, I'm pro-life when it's alive, but I don't know when it's alive. Maybe it's only alive when it comes out of the womb, or maybe it's alive in the last trimester, but before, when it's growing into a third trimester fetus, it's not alive, which is kind of silly to say, but this is all very confused. Um, the real question to me, and I, I think there are a lot of people that are confused on this, a lot of uh, bad thinking, buying into slogans, uh, pressure from culture, habit of having almost 50 years of legalized abortion uh, that are going to cause people to be fuzzy thinkers on this issue. The question is, so whether this pa- in my mind, whether this pastor is a fuzzy thinker on a whole bunch of other issues, too. That's the issue, all right? And uh, if if he is this fuzzy on other things that have theological weight, then, you know, that's probably not a good environment. But I think there's a lot of pastors who are probably going to be pretty solid theologically and a lot of stuff, but then when it comes to these controversial moral issues, they have not learned to think carefully about it. So you're going to have to make your own decision, Tom, whether you want to hang out there but I wouldn't be discouraged in the slightest by the things your pastor said for you having conversations with him or other people, whoever wanted to have it, to clarify a thoughtful, consistent pro-life view. Right? What you do about the rest of it is going to be based on other things. Lots of people are confused in this issue <clears throat> because there's a lot of bad propaganda out there, confusing propaganda. All right. So let's take another quick break, and then we'll uh, we'll deal with the last question or two at the uh, the following segment. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask.
All right, back in, back at you here. A great Coco Sanderson. <clears throat> I was just drinking an iced coffee from. It's one of those. Uh, what do they call it? Sweet cream. I've I've had them before, but I usually don't drink Starbucks drinks except for straight up coffee, no sugar. And uh, but I I got treated to this yesterday, and it actually is pretty good. But there's not much sugar in it, right? It's just basically cream and coffee, but it tastes pretty darn good, almost like it is one of those sweet things. All right. Uh, by the way, I think Starbucks would no longer be in business if they didn't make all those heavily laden sugar kinds of things. Who buys coffee there anymore? Everybody's buying all this fancy schmancy stuff. But nevertheless, I'm drinking one, so I shouldn't complain. But it's not oversweet. Uh, one other question here from Joe Watson. It has to do with uh, <clears throat> broadly the abortion issue or uh it's it's related so we're we got some rhythm on that right now why don't we take him joe watson my question is regarding abortion is taking contraceptives uh considered no uh and in relationship to abortion or is it just once you know, the seed is conceived. Thanks. Okay, that was pretty to the point. It has to do with contraceptives. I actually think the word contraceptive, as opposed, well, it's broadly under birth control, but their birth is when the baby comes out. (laughs) Contraceptive is keeping someone from having a baby. Now, there are legitimate... Uh, moral discussions about whether acting in such a way to interfere with the natural process so that a woman does not get pregnant through the through through having intercourse there are legitimate discussions about whether that is moral or not and characteristically most protestants come out down on one side say yeah it's okay and roman catholics will come down on another Okay, so there is there is a, discu- a, a, a discussion about contraceptives, um, but but strictly speaking, I think we're not talking about that. What we're talking here, or what would be more of a concern regarding the abortion issue, is birth control. That is, if you get pregnant, can you use a kind of device? whether it's mechanical or whether it's chemical, to keep the baby from developing so that you give birth. That's why they call it birth control. Now, there are some contraceptives that keep the woman from conceiving. If the contraceptive keeps a woman from conceiving, then there is no parallel with that and abortion, because abortion only happens when you have conception and a zygote or an embryo or a fetus that then gets killed through the process of abortion, either by by um, suffocation or chemical burning or uh, dismemberment. These are different types of abortion processes. But one chemical one can happen very, very early in the pregnancy. 
So the the egg is moving down the fallopian tube, intercepted by the lucky sperm who scores, and now you have an embryo, or a zygote rather, that is moving down the fallopian tube to find its place attached to the uterine wall and develop into an embryo and then further into a fetus. Notice, by the way, these are these are not different things. These are words that identify different stages, and they're words we invented. It's the same thing throughout. Once there is fertilization, the the blast blastocyst becomes a zygote, I guess. I, I wonder if I got my terms right here. And then an embryo, then a then a uh, embryo, and then a fetus. These are just different stages of growth. But some birth control methods. Uh, prevent the uh, zygote from attaching to the side of the uterus and instead cause the body to expel the very, very small human being, thus killing the human being. That is called a, a method that is an abortifacient. That is, the way the birth control method works, or at least it's a backup method, is it doesn't just keep conception from happening, but if conception does happen, then the conceived human being will not survive because it will not attach and it will be expelled. That's an abortion. It's a chemical abortion very, very early on. Many women don't even know they've had it because there's no trauma to their body. This is a you know just multicellular organism, human, that is passed on. So um, the question here is not size or stage or level of development or location, fallopian tube, uterus, whatever, but rather, what is it? And at the point of conception, a new human being comes into existence, and that new human being is made in the image of God. Oh, it's just a blob of tissue. So are you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're all blobs of tissue. The question is, what kind of a blob are we? And in the case of you and I and that itty-bitty human being, we are all human beings. And all human beings are made in the image of God and therefore have value. And taking the life of a human being at any stage of development, at any size, is destroying a human life. And uh, if characteristically this would be de facto homicide from a moral perspective not illegal but certainly illicit taking the life of an innocent human being without proper justification that's what makes it illicit so there's the take on contraceptives i think contraceptives are okay if they are not abortifacients if they are not abortifacients if they are not designed to kill the new human being that has just been conceived. All right? So, uh, and if, by the way, if if you're Roman Catholic or, or hold to those views, then no kind of intervention that is, that is uh, artificial is going to be considered legitimate. All right, so uh, that's, <clears throat> that's uh, Joe. Thank you, Joe. And let's just, uh, I think we got about six... 
minutes left, or let's get a real short one. Um, let's go to Paul's. Paul Olis. Why does a God simply get rid of this monster, Satan, right now, immediately? Thank you. <laughs> Full stop, right? Okay, short question, short answer. Because God's got a reason that is morally sufficient. He is going to accomplish something that will bring him glory. Now, that's a—how do I know that? Well, God didn't tell me. Uh, but it's a pretty—when you, when you look at the breadth of Scripture and all the things that God allows to happen, there are lots of times that he explains that he's going to do this for his glory, okay? And— um, <clears throat> He will be glorified. My name will be glorified, etc., etc. <clears throat> and uh, as a general rule, when we see things happen that seem like, wait a minute, why did God do that? Well, first of all, you, they're very hard to answer characteristically. Why did he? Why didn't he? The only way we would know why he did or why he didn't in that individual circumstance is if he tells us. And with regards to individual circumstances, he hasn't told us. So to some degree, either the question is unanswerable or it's only tentatively answerable as we speculate based on what we know about God. Now, as a, another general statement, to say that God allows it for some good that he has predetermined, that's always a safe statement because God is a good God. And if God isn't good, then there is no such thing as goodness, because there is no way to ground goodness apart from a morally good creature, a perfectly morally, or a morally perfect creature. That's another discussion, but I'm just saying. So that, that if there is goodness in the world, there's got to be a, 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 a morally perfect divine being to ground it, to make sense of it, all right? So if he allows something to happen, it's going to be because he has a good reason to do so. And again, broadly, the good reason um, often comes down simply to his glory. He will be glorified in the process. Something good will come out of this, and will will um, vindicate God in the in the in the the eyes of men and angelic creatures, because there is this sense that we get from scriptures that there are a lot uh, that heavenly creatures are watching the drama unfold. And God is going to demonstrate himself good and vindicated by the things that eventuate. And uh, I think the same thing here. Why doesn't God get rid of that monster, Paul said? Well, because he's, he's got good he's going to accomplish for himself uh, by allowing the monster to live longer. Incidentally, the same question could be, uh, could be asked of, of other monsters like us. <laughs> uh, you know, when we are compared to God's goodness, the moral perfection of God himself, or even the innocence of Adam and Eve, they were completely innocent. There was no flaw or fault in them. Um, we are monsters. 
No, we look at each other and we pet each other on the shoulder. We think we're pretty good folk. But compared to moral perfection, we're monsters. People say, wait a minute, I'm no Hitler. To which I respond, good. (laughs) One was enough. But you're no Jesus of Nazareth either. And Hitler's not the standard. Jesus is the standard. Okay, so God, he puts up with the monster Satan and uh, the little monsters, human beings, for a reason. Partly with human beings, because there's a chance for their redemption. There is no chance for Satan's redemption. But God is going to use all of these things to bring glory to himself. It's always a safe answer to these questions that seem unanswerable about why did God or why didn't God. He's got a plan, and it's a good plan, even though in the short run, we can't figure it all out. Well, I thank you, uh, Joe and Sonny and Tom, for your questions. We have more. We'll do another show another time like this. Uh, Just go to our website, str.org. Go to our broadcast page. If you want to record something, There's the instructions are there. Send the question. We'll deal with it sometime in the future. I'm Greg Kolkel for Stand to Reason. You give give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.